Welcome and let's First Talk Compliance. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance. On today's episode, I'm talking to Jennifer Gimler-Brady, Partner and General Counsel at the law firm of Potter, Anderson & Caroon in Wilmington, Delaware, about employee handbooks, basics, and must-haves, discussing why employers of all sizes should utilize employee handbooks. We will also talk about some key employment laws that should be addressed in handbook policies and some best practice recommendations. Jennifer concentrates her practice in the areas of health, labor, and employment law and commercial litigation. She regularly advises long-term care providers, physician practices, and other health care providers on a variety of issues, including licensing and certification, fraud and abuse laws, medical privacy and confidentiality, and litigation matters. Jennifer also counsels employers on labor and employment issues, including unionization and collective bargaining, employee supervision, discipline and discharge, sexual harassment, and employment discrimination. So Jennifer, welcome to First Talk Compliance. We're so happy to have you here. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you. So let's talk about employee handbooks. So if an employer only has a few employees, does it really need to have an employee handbook? That is a great question, Catherine. And the short answer to that question is yes, that there is just to set the uh, framework, there is no federal or state law that mandates that employers have handbooks. However, there are plenty of federal and state laws that require posting and notice to employees. And that's why you'll see in many company bulletin boards and, and display cases, there are posters maybe about the Fair Labor Standards Act or the Family Medical uh, Leave Act uh, or other notices of, of employee rights. Those are required. You're not required to have a handbook, but the, the reality is that a handbook allows a one-stop shopping vehicle for employees to understand what the employer's expectations are and also what employees can expect of the employer in terms of wages, benefit, uh, policies, discipline, conduct expectations. All of those things can be in a one unified vehicle rather than a compilation of policies that may be some policies with one part of the company and other policies with another part of the company. Uh, A handbook allows for those policies to all be in one place. The other benefit to it is that many states and the federal employment laws have different thresholds for impl- for applicability. For example, in Delaware, where I practice primarily, the anti-discrimination laws apply to uh, workplaces with four or more employees. And that may strike some folks as relatively low threshold compared to some of the federal laws that have employee thresholds of 15 or perhaps 50 or and, and, and any other uh, number of combinations. So it's for uh, employers who think I'm too small 
it's I don't need it yes there may be a difference between what a handbook for uh, a major uh, 20,000 employee organization looks like versus what a 5 10 15 or 20 employee shop looks like in terms of the comprehensiveness but any size employer should have a one document that orients new employees and and current employees to what the employers expectations are and what the employees can expect from the employer. So what type of things should be included in this handbook, whether if we're talking about if it's, for example, at a, at a small location as opposed to maybe a location that had like a, a that had maybe 300 employees? Well, and it also helps to to keep in mind what the what the purposes are for a handbook, and in allowing um, recognizing that framework can help guide employers as to what they in particular should have in their handbook. So we talked about managing expectations. We talked about um, having a one-stop shopping where an employee can look instead of going to his or her manager twenty times. The handbook is almost like a uh, an FAQ, a frequently asked questions vehicle, where employees can go uh, in, in on their own time or in the evenings, weekends, what have you, and, and just get general information. Um, it, the, the distinction between maybe a large employer and a small employer um, may be that uh, as I mentioned earlier, some laws have a minimum number of employees as thresholds. So that if you are not covered by a particular law because you don't have as many employees, uh, for example, the Family Medical Leave Act, if you only have four or five employees, you may not be covered by the FMLA and therefore your handbook is not going to address that. And there is a caveat to that though, that um, your particular state's law may change that analysis because you may be in a state where there is a state version of FMLA and it may or may not, uh, not require paid leave and the threshold for applicability to a particular employer may be lower than the federal law. So if that's the case, then you would have a, a leave policy in your, uh, in your handbook. Um, there are other things um, that I think are probably more common to to both employers, uh, um, small and large. That would be your anti-discrimination statements, your fair workplace commitment. Any workplace would want to have those types of, of statements in their handbook. Um, however, how much detail, what kind of mechanism uh, is uh, included for reporting concerns about workplace practices, those may be very different depending on the size of the employer. The employer, a large uh, uh, perhaps a, a multi-state or a multinational employer is going to probably have very sophisticated reporting mechanisms and maybe 800 numbers and um, compliance officers and uh, seg segregated HR departments, human resource departments for receiving complaints. So in those kinds of handbooks, you're going to see very extensive descriptions of policies um, for reporting and um, specifying the, the options that employees have to bring concerns forward. In a smaller environment, 
policies may be much more uh, straightforward and, and truncated to some extent because you may have your reporting vehicle may be to a person who wears many hats in the organization, not just HR, but also dealing with benefits and uh, perhaps other management responsibilities. Um, that may be the, the reporting vehicle in those organizations. So it's not so much the, the content itself as it may be the um, level of detail and the um, the um, extensiveness of the particular policy um, uh, that that is the differentiator in those kinds of, of situations. Um, the it's important to remember that employee handbooks may be the first introduction that an employee gets to the organization. Another reason to have them, of course, is because they're helpful for that onboarding process when you're bringing a new employee in and you want to introduce them to the company and what the company's expectations are. And as part of the onboarding, you may sit down and highlight the, the really important policies that are in the handbook. Um, but um, it also, the handbook also says a lot about the culture of the organization. Uh, so that if you have large or small um, as a uh, as a company, if you have um, really pro-employee policies, perhaps you have, for example, a uh, work-from-home policy that allows employees to um, uh, work remotely and um, uh, gives them uh, more flexibility in their workday. Large and small employers have those kinds of policies. That is certainly something you're going to want to address and highlight in your handbook, how that works, how you can take advantage of it, because that may convey uh, a, a certain point of view about the employer and, and the whether the employer is flexible and, and family friendly. Um, so versus maybe another kind of organization where they might be very heavily regulated, for example. And so their handbook may come across as more proscriptive, things you can't do, things that will result in disciplinary action, things that may require uh, reporting to particular regulatory agencies. Those kinds of handbooks send a different message um, to employees about perhaps the culture of the organization. Um, so again, it, it's not so much the size of the employer that matters. It's really the, the nature of the employee, the, the workplace in terms of um, the kind of workplace it is and also the things that are important in the culture of that organization. Those are things that are going to get highlighted. Um, because remember as well, having a handbook is um, also a protective tool for employers, again, of all sizes. We've talked about the point of a handbook helping employees understand the expectations of the job and being clear, giving clear notice about what may happen if employees don't um, perform consistently with expectations. A typical provision in any handbook, uh, for example, talks about job performance, evaluations, 
uh, and, and appraisals and the review process. Again, not necessarily in excruciating detail, but it raises those issues as well as standards of conduct and what will happen if folks don't comply with the standards of conduct. That Those provisions, again, I would say are essential regardless of the size of the employer. You want to have employees understand how's their performance going to be assessed? What what, how frequently is it going to be assessed? Are raises going to be part of the review process? And what kind of timing can the employees expect? Making also, sure the, making sure there's clear expectations there uh, at, at, for, for both the employer and the employee. Absolutely. And again, that the, the, the you know, to, to wear my lawyer hat, the defensive uh, benefits of a handbook apply to any organization regardless of size because often the handbook will be part of evidence in a litigation matter. For example, if there's a discrimination claim, a sexual harassment claim, a retaliation claim, often part of the focus of those kinds of cases will be on what were the employer's policies, what did the employer do to educate its employees about the expectations under those policies, what mechanism does the employer have or did the employer have for bringing forward concerns. That's when you think, Wow, I'm glad I have all of that information in one place. Workers' compensation claims, for example, that most handbooks, again, not in excruciating detail, but they will advise employees to report workplace injuries and to do so promptly um, and to and they'll identify how they go about making those kinds of reports. The reason that's important is because in, in comp claims there's a timing element um, uh, by which employers have to report injuries uh, when they're first placed on notice if the policy, if the employee didn't give the employer notice and that becomes an issue uh, when the claim is litigated, if the claim is litigated, having a handbook for the employer to fall back on to say, look, I'm very clear in my policy about how this is supposed to work. And employees are given um, explanations of what they're, what they're supposed to do if they're injured on the job. And so it's it's helpful in that context to be a piece of, of evidence to prove that, in fact, the employer did notify employees of, of what their rights were, what their expectations were. Same for unemployment comp claims. Um, in, in states where uh, employees can be disqualified from benefits based on willful misconduct, the key issue generally falls down to what did the employee know about the expectations in that particular area, whatever the, the issue was that, that led to the termination. And if you don't have a paper record of some sort to point to as to how the employee was formed of the, uh, informed of the expectations, you may not get very far in establishing that the employee uh, engaged in willful misconduct because you, as a predicate for that kind of claim, you have to be able to show that they were on notice of what the expectations were. That's why it raises a, a point that I, I think is important for folks when you have a handbook is to make sure that you get an employee's acknowledgement of having received it. 
and the, uh, many employers just get a piece of paper, have a piece of uh, paper attached to the back of their handbook that says uh, the employee acknowledges receipt on X date. Some larger organizations do this electronically and have electronic acknowledgments that go along with the distribution of the handbooks. It really doesn't matter what form as long as, as you get that acknowledgement because again it helps with if you're ever put to the proof of whether the employee was on notice of the expectations. If their signature is on a document uh, or there's an electronic acknowledgement that goes a long way uh, toward helping the employer um, prove that point. Right. Have you found that particularly in healthcare type of facilities that there's some key points that they should have in their in their handbook? Yeah, I, I think that um, you know healthcare organizations are are um, uh, as as complex and uh, um, regulated in in. Uh, as any organization out there. So for healthcare organizations in particular, I think the reporting uh, provisions, the whistleblower provisions, the non-retaliation provisions are really, really important because um, in, in healthcare organizations that are highly regulated and may be subjected to federal uh, enforcement actions, perhaps under the False Claims Act or under any number of regulatory schemes that are applicable specifically to healthcare organizations, it's really important in terms of your um, mitigation or your defenses to show that you have robust compliance plans, one piece of which is to make clear that you have advised your employees of the, the fact that they should and they're obligated to report any knowledge of misconduct or uh, false uh, billing, anything that's a compliance-related issue. And so for healthcare organizations, their handbooks should be very clear about how an employee that, that about the employee's obligation to bring that information forward if if an employee becomes aware of some kind of misconduct and to have a vehicle for reporting and in large healthcare organizations there are typically multiple avenues of, of reporting including anonymous reporting uh, through 800 numbers and, and that type of thing. Those reporting vehicles should be addressed in a policy and very, very critically important is the assurance of non-retaliation. Many, many claims um, uh, based on uh, alleged wrongful termination um, it, particularly in a healthcare environment will include a retaliation claim that I brought forward a concern and I was terminated as a result. So having very clear non-retaliation provisions in, in healthcare uh, employer handbooks are, you know, I say, I think that that's a critically important um, aspect because it's not just for the reporter that you want to assure that the reporting employee won't be retaliated against, but you also want to assure anybody who assists in that investigation that they will not be retaliated against because they, they provided a, uh, an interview or they, they gave documents or, um, you know, otherwise assisted. Um, they too are entitled to protection and, and um, having policies in writing that 
um, make it clear the kind of environment that, that you want to have where you want people to feel comfortable bringing forward concerns and they can be sure assured that they won't be retaliated against for doing so um, uh, is really important for a compliance aspect of a healthcare entity. I also should note that um, employees, it's its not just protecting them. Healthcare employers should also have in those kinds of reporting policies a clear statement of the expectation and obligation of employees to cooperate with investigations. That, that should be crystal clear that if an employee um, is called upon whether to give testimony or to um, submit to an interview um, about something relating to the employment, uh, to the workplace, they are expected to cooperate. And if they choose not to, that may result in, in disciplinary action. Again, trying to foster an environment where people um, are uh, comfortable coming forward. So frankly, from an employer's perspective, um, you're, you're trying to get a handle on issues before they get out of control. So you want to have a very robust reporting um, mechanism and expectation of employees. So I, th I think that that's a particular issue for healthcare employers. I just wanted to highlight one other aspect for healthcare employers, and that's with regard to um, accommodations with uh, employees seeking accommodation for um, uh, disabilities. Um, the law isn't different for healthcare employers as opposed to any other type of employers, but the expectations may be because if you're in the the uh, realm, uh, if you're a healthcare provider, uh, it may be that what is reasonable in your workplace may be different or viewed differently in terms of a an accommodation for a disabled employee than another workplace and what may be reasonable in another workplace simply because of the nature of being a healthcare provider and taking care of uh, patients perhaps with disabilities. I, I think candidly employers in the healthcare area are fairly or unfairly attributed with perhaps better knowledge or higher expectations when it comes to accommodating disabled employees. It's almost like the thinking is well. Em healthcare employers should know better. They 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 should understand these realities may, uh, perhaps better than a, a widget manufacturer would, for for example. So I do think it's really important that healthcare employers have up to date and clear policies on the Family Medical Leave Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act and the state counterparts if they're operating in states where there might be state-specific laws. Those things come to mind in terms of, of really important things for healthcare employers to, to emphasize. Great. So again, making sure that there's clear expectations and clear understanding of the laws. That's, that's very Absolutely. good. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance. And my guest today is Jennifer Gimler-Brady of Potter Anderson Caroon in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. And what resources are available to help with handbook drafting? They, another um, another great question. There are lots of different ones, and you know, in terms of best practices, um, the the Herculean task is to to do the initial draft. If you don't have one, to put one right. together. There are internet resources. Um, 
if you're uh, a member or just a follower of the uh, um, human resource organizations, Society of Human Resource Managers comes to mind as one that makes a lot of uh, public information available on the internet. And there are other, I would call trade organizations, make information available. Um, and you probably uh, would want to look for a resource that's similar to your business because it's most likely to have policies that would be applicable if you wanted to follow an example. Uh, you know, another another source is counsel for the company if, if, the, if the employer works with legal counsel. At a minimum, even if, and I recognize there could be some cost, particularly for small organizations that 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 may be unattractive, but you at least want to make sure that you're you get legal review when you have a draft together, just to make sure that you're touching all the bases that are applicable to employment to employers in your state. But I would think uh, that you know your best resources would be uh, trade groups, and um, as I mentioned, the internet has uh, lots of policy drafts that are available, and and some regulatory agencies have uh, sample policies. Um, I know that that many of your listeners may be governed by HIPAA and the uh, Office of Civil, Civil Rights website has lots of, of policies and samples that um, organizations can follow and frankly some of some of the HIPAA policies might need to be incorporated in a healthcare provider's handbook. And uh, you know I would just say in terms of best practices you don't want to just Create a handbook and put it on a shelf somewhere. These should be living, breathing documents that are reviewed annually to make sure that they're still current, they're still up to date, and employees should be trained on the, the policies that are in those handbooks. They shouldn't just be distributed and say, here, read this when, you know, someday. There should be an effort to make sure that there's kind of a, a guided review of those policies uh, conducted by somebody representing a management of the, of the employer, again, to make sure that employees are well informed about the expectations in the workplace. True, true. Well, this has been a really wonderful discussion. I wanted to thank you so much for your time, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. And My thank pleasure. you so thank you so much. And thank you so much to our audience for tuning in. I think we're about out of time. You can learn more about our show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at firsthcc. You can also email me at Catherine Short at firsthcc.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.